Who you in the park with? I don't know names. I just got lost. Where did you see the lady? One, one lady. The female jogger was severely beaten and raped. Every black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. I need all of them. What's going on with my son? Your son was involved in rape in Central Park. No, 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 Wait a second, wait a second. They saw you rape the lady. I didn't see a lady or hit anyone. I didn't see any lady. Kevin. I didn't see any lady. I want to see my son right now, right now. Whatever they said I did, I didn't. This Emmy season... 16 nominations were awarded to Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, the affecting limited series that looks at the wrongful convictions of the exonerated five in the 1989 Central Park jogging case. It was nominated in categories including Outstanding Limited Series, Direction for DuVernay, and one for Chris Bauer's score. It's been a remarkable year for the musician and composer who scored the Best Picture Oscar-winning film Green Book. He was also Mahershala Ali's piano teacher for the film, and even stood in for the actor during some of the musical performances. Chris joins us today to talk about his When They See Us score and the sort of projects that inspire him. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you've been nominated for your first Emmy yeah. for When They See Us. How did you meet Ava DuVernay and what attracted you to this project? So my first time meeting her, she called me in just to basically interview for the show. And she got my name from Jason Moran was kind of the main recommendation. He's an incredible jazz pianist that is also a mentor of mine. He's been a mentor of mine, I consider, for like over 10 years now and um he's also ava's like musical brother he did selma and the 13th and they've worked together a lot and he was working on this project originally but his touring schedule and some of the other things he was doing outside of that there was too much of a demand on him time-wise and so he had to step away and she asked for a recommendation and he recommended me and um the first meeting i had with her she was Basically, she was like, yeah, I know you did Green Book and I know you've done these other shows and I've heard your name from other people, including Jason. But um, she really wanted to make sure that I was going to be the right person to handle this subject matter and also handle this story in the way that she felt it should be handled. And so she showed me the first episode and then we had a conversation after that. And I think that first episode was what made me fall even more in love with the project, which is a weird thing to say, but it was so heartbreaking and difficult to watch and gut-wrenching but it also just made me feel or I could see how important it was and I could feel how urgent it was and how much I could empathize with these boys and how I couldn't even believe the experience I had been in and watching that first episode I was immediately drawn to possibly being a part of the project. Big picture. What were the initial discussions with Ava and what was the overall approach to the score? Yeah so the first conversation we had in that interview, in that first meeting, actually, she basically asked how I thought I would approach it. And one of the things that struck me the most was just how horrific what we were seeing was and how it felt. And I wanted to find a way to capture that. And so I mentioned looking at even some horror films as references for creating 
sound design type textures that are going to feel almost like animal animalistic and and feel like screams and moans and all that kind of stuff to have a visceral type of feeling but on top of that also wanting to have something that would still maintain the humanity and the innocence and the beauty of these boys and i think that was something that continued to be our conversation throughout the process like anytime i wrote a cue especially in some of the interrogation scenes or some of the courtroom scenes her biggest fear was that some of those things would feel a bit procedural or that if we went too ambient with the score that it wouldn't really make us feel as much as we needed to feel and so there were times where i would write a cue and she would be like well i still don't feel these boys in this cue i don't i still don't feel them and that's incredibly important and so that was kind of the constant balancing conversations how to add these layers of these horror type sounds that I created by taking instruments like cello and uh, violin and trumpet and sax and having them play things that just didn't sound right on their instrument and and sounded like they were like breaking the instruments essentially and then continue to filter those things and add effects and all that kind of stuff but then layer that with any sort of simple like piano melodies that could evoke more of the emotive human side of the story and then just kind of anything that's a little bit more traditional given the context yeah well let's listen to some of the music from episode two tell us about the enemies cue yeah one thing that we talked about also with this series was making each episode feel somewhat different so that we can kind of continue to track their development through this process ava mentioned wanting the using this show to also just show mass incarceration and how it works and so each episode is showing a different aspect of that process and the first episode there's really just focusing on that this horrific sound and so this is the first cue of the of the second episode and it immediately has a very different sound than the the cues from the first episode we start off with like this synth melody and there hasn't really been much synth in the previous episode at all also the beginning kind of we're hearing these uh news bites these like sounds of different newscasters talking about the case talking about these boys talking about their perception of them and i think what was fascinating is how they were all talking about these boys that were basically out to cause harm out to do something bad and so this whole first thing is kind of setting the stage for what we're about to see with this battle essentially between the boys and their attorneys and the uh, opposition. Let's talk about the piece of cake, Q. What did you want to convey in the story at that moment? So the thing with episode two that was a bit more difficult than some of the others is that we wanted to try to build up to this verdict at the very end, right? Like the thing is that it's a true story. So we all go into the show knowing what happens to these boys. But at the end of the day, we also want it to feel just with the storytelling like when we hear that verdict, it's going to be a surprise. It's going to feel like, you know, the rug gets taken out from underneath us. And so with that, it was my job then to find any moment of positivity throughout the entire episode to really try to highlight that because there isn't very much light in this, in this series. And so this is one of the first cues. This is the cue that when we're introduced to the lawyers for the first time that are going to be defending these boys. And so it's really the first time that we 
have something that feels a little bit more upbeat and optimistic and and it starts to lay the foundation for something that's going to sound a little bit more hopeful in this episode which we don't really have in some of the other ones the instrumentation is i think only piano and strings and a bit of synth pads and things like that around it but the piano i kind of still continued with this idea of affecting the instrument so the piano has a bit of delay on it and it's uh kind of this like felt piano that's a little bit prepared also some of the strings are playing a combination of pizzicato or you know like bartok pits and like slapping the strings a bit so there's a little bit more of a percussive sound and there's i think a little bit of bucket drumming in there as well so that trying to create a little bit of momentum and a percussive sound with instruments that maybe aren't expected Later in the episode, we have the cue Patricia Miley. The Patricia Miley cue is when she comes to the stand, and it's the first time that we actually get to see her. We hear her speak, and it starts off with this unbelievably slow walk all the way from the main entrance to the stand, and we just see how difficult it is for her to move through that. And then um, when she's recounting the story, we also take a theme that came from the first episode. So the theme that we hear when we are first introduced to Patricia Miley, where we talk about her jogging through the park and all of that, that same cue and melody kind of repeats here, but it's a little bit different. It's kind of elongated and stretched out and and there's a lot more space and pauses put in between things to kind of create more discomfort. I think the whole thing with this cue is trying to really make us as uncomfortable and on edge as, as... maybe the people were in that room or as we are as audience members watching what's happening and seeing her try to describe her experience and, and the fact that she can't remember anything from it. And, and it's trying to create tension because we're also hoping that maybe she'll remember that it wasn't these boys that did it. So building through all of that was, yeah, trying to figure out a way to not only hold the tension, but again, figure out a way to use her theme or that main theme in a way that would shape that scene in a great way, I guess. Let's listen. Further in the episode, we have another cue when Bobby testifies. Yeah, so that cue, the theme for Bobby and Antron was kind of one of the first things that I wrote. In episode one, it's the first time we hear that theme between Bobby and Antron where he tells him to go along with what the cops are asking of him. And um, it was just a moment where that whole relationship between all four episodes or, or the first three since we don't see Bobby anymore in episode four is just so complex because you have this father that's really you know canning his his son over essentially to the police and but he doesn't realize that he's doing it he's trying to protect himself and he's doing it out of fear and he's doing it out of 
his understanding of what might be the best thing for him and his family. And yet he's destroying his son's life. And so in this this scene, it's where Bobby and Antron are in the bathroom right before Bobby testifies. And Bobby hasn't been there the entire time. He hasn't gone to any of the court dates. And finally he shows up and kind of shows up in a way that's, I don't know, the way he carries himself almost is as if he's trying to pretend like he hasn't been there. You know, he's trying to pretend like he's still the man that's that's protecting his son, essentially. And this conversation that they have is where Antron steps up to his father and says, just lays out the stakes for him and just tells him that, like, this is my life that's on the line. Like, you don't understand that if you say the wrong thing or if I say the wrong thing or somebody says the wrong thing, it's my life that's going to be affected. And so there's this piano melody that's kind of the center of their theme, but then layered on top of that, are not only strings that are just kind of supporting that piano melody, that piano theme, but also a lot of that weird aleatoric sound designy string stuff that I affected and all that, just because this is a moment that for me feels like there's this, although there's this broken love between them and this thing, this, it sounds like the loss of innocence and all that kind of stuff, but also it's still just horrifying because we, at the end of the day, know what happens. The episode concludes with a cue called One Night. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so this is, I mean, almost like for me, at least with the themes and music, like the thesis for for this whole show where, um, you know, this, it starts off with Yusuf's mother, Sharon, talking about you do your best as a mother. You try to be there and you try to protect your kid and see them every step of the way. And then one night you look away and everything can change. And so the cue starts off with this piano melody that really becomes like the sound of the relationships between the mothers and their sons. Each one of them have a theme that's kind of based on this one night cue and uh, has like, it's basically a variation on that melody. And so it starts off with this piano melody and kind of underscoring that that statement and that sentiment, this idea of the love that mothers are trying to give their sons in this situation and, and the fear that they have of things going wrong. And then it continues to escalate as we get closer and closer to the verdict and we understand that they're about to um, deliver it and they ask the boys to stand up and some of the percussion and these bucket drums and all these other things start to build in and the strings and all that swell. And then it all climax to the moment where we hear the verdict. And at that moment, it was one of the hardest cues for us to get right for Ava because she just wanted it again to feel like unbelievable that that's what happened, even though, yes. you know, it's what we're expecting. And it kind of just takes a, a left turn and just starts to sound like a cacophony of madness. And that's also the first time that we see Kevin play trumpet. And that's why there's trumpet in the score, because it's kind of like thematic for Kevin. But it's the first time that we see him in this very surreal montage playing and we hear the trumpet lined up with that, which is for some that that kind of makes sense as to why there's been trumpet in the score the entire time and also where all these sounds are kind of like 
matching some of the moaning and screaming and, and agony that we're seeing on screen. And so there's so much, um, again, of these instruments that I kind of mess with and manipulated that I'm trying to like just mash together in that last bit to echo what we're seeing and and the pain that we're seeing. And then there's a cello melody that comes in and plays on top. And it's, again, another melody that continues to iterate throughout the series whenever we have some of these painful moments. And it kind of feels to me like, I don't know, I almost think like, like Paul Robeson or like some like old, like Negro spiritual as far as like the melody and the way that I wanted it to sit amongst all this horrific chaos. Where did you record the music and did you use musicians that you've worked with before? Or? Yeah, uh, we recorded here in Los Angeles. A lot of the musicians are actually friends that I went to high school with. My friend Max Wrightson, who's the music coordinator on this, helped put together some of those musicians. And it was, yeah, it's pretty special to kind of have people that I'm um, personally close with, like play some of this music. Yeah. Now, you're from Los Angeles originally. Tell us how you got into the business. Yeah, I started playing piano. I was very young. My parents decided before I was born, they wanted me to play piano. And my dad was a writer for film and TV. And so movies were always a big deal in our house. And I decided pretty early on that I just loved film score. And I just could hear or feel how the scores for different projects could make me feel the same way that I felt in the movie theater when I was only listening to the score. And being a pretty introverted kid I really got like I don't know I worked out a lot of my emotion on the piano I kind of didn't know how to articulate myself very well but could play something that could at least get those feelings out and so finding that connection between music and storytelling and music and conveying emotion I just kind of fell in love with the idea of doing that and when I went to college I went to Juilliard in New York and I started telling people pretty early on even actually before I graduated high school I was already telling people how I wanted to be a film composer and that is really what helped get things started because the first couple of projects I did came from some random people that just knew that that's what I wanted to do. This woman that was my manager for a second after I won this piano competition, she knew that I wanted to do that. So she started kind of reaching out to people and she found this documentary about Elaine Stritch that was one of my first projects or my very first project. And this documentary I did about Kobe Bryant, which also was a big thing in helping me get more work came because this guy that I was in a high school all-star band with remember it when I was in high school that I used to talk about film scoring all the time. And he was like, I'm producing this thing and I'd love for you to do it because I like your music. And at that time, I had only done two documentaries, only one that had really been released. And so it wasn't like I had a resume that showed that I was capable or able. And so really a lot of those first things were people that just trusted me and, and knew that that was a passion of mine and gave me the opportunity. Last year, you composed the score for Green Book. And you also had the opportunity to effectively be the hand double, body double for Mahershala Ali when he plays the piano. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, it was a pretty, I mean, it's one of those experiences where the universe just kind of comes together in a very inexplicable way. And, um, you know, they reached out to me because they've wanted somebody that can handle all these different roles and like score the film and learn the piano and teach Mahershala piano. And 
the first meeting I had with them, the fact that they were already on board with me coming onto this film that had these A-list actors and people that I've been fans of for a very long time and it being a studio film and it might being my first studio film, it was very, very surprising to have them react that way and, and to trust me that much. And the first thing, learning all that music was, was incredibly challenging, but a challenge that I was excited about. You know, it kind of reminded me of my beginnings with learning piano and learning jazz piano specifically. I learned most of that by transcribing stuff. And so the fact that I had to transcribe all this music transported me back to college, essentially. And then working with Mahershala was incredible because of how serious he is and how dedicated he is to his craft. And the fact that I mean, he's the one that that really asked for those lessons because he would tell Pete, the director, that he, one, didn't want to look silly sitting down at the piano, but also really felt that even when you see a dancer standing there, you know that they're a dancer by the way they carry themselves, by the way they stand. And so he wanted to not only meet with me to work on learning the piano, but also to see what my posture is like. What do I do with my hands when I'm not playing piano? And how do I carry myself generally? But he was so dedicated when it came to learning the instrument where I would give him a C major scale, which is kind of like the very, the ABCs of piano playing essentially. And he spent three hours, our first lesson, just playing that over and over and over and over again. And, and was relentless and wouldn't stop. <laughs> yeah, the fact that he was that dedicated to it is is really what made it all work and come together. Because I feel like, you know, when you look at the film, even just the way that he sits and carries himself, it's so important with music films because that will take at least the musicians out of the film if they're watching it and, you know, you right. can tell that person's not a musician. But it was just impressive to see him not only being this other person and memorizing the dialogue, but also like sitting at an instrument that he didn't even really know very well and command this presence that, that still felt like he was a pianist that's been playing for years. Yes. Who were some of the musicians and composers that inspired you in your career? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a pretty long list, but like, as far as specifically in film, definitely, uh, I mean, John Williams, just because, not only because he's incredibly iconic in every melody, I always say that if you can sing a theme it's from a movie, it's probably a John Williams score, but also the fact that he started as a jazz pianist and used to put out jazz records and then transitioned into film scoring is something I've always looked at as an inspiration. But also, musically, people like James Newton Howard, John Powell, Quincy Jones, who also I've been inspired by his career and the way that he was able to traverse both scoring, but also producing and arranging and, and have his own albums and things like that. And I think that's something else that constantly inspired me, the musicians that have both an artist career and compose things, like people like Trent Reznor or Mika Levy and uh, Johnny Greenwood. I think those right. those also are people that are coming outside of the film scoring space and therefore have a totally fresh and unique sound within the, the scoring world. What are you working on now or what's next on your plate? So I just finished a horror film with uh, Justin Simeon, who did Dear White People. And this film is set in the 80s and it's basically about the introduction and dissemination of the weave into popular culture in, in um, black community. And as we start to see our main character not only feel somewhat pressured in her workplace to get a weave, she finally does. And then she feels like people are, are treating her better. She feels like she's more attractive. She has more confidence and all these different things. But then things start to go wrong. And we find out that the weaves are kind of making these women kill people. <laughs> and so it's a pretty wild film. And with that one, we had the chance to produce these songs that sound like they come from that era, like these New Jack Swing songs that are inspired by like 
Janet Jackson or Bobby Brown or that kind of stuff or Belle Biv DeVoe. And, and then the score is inspired by like The Shining or Ligeti and Penderecki and all this very atonal, weird classical music. So it was a pretty fun thing to work on. And then I'm working on another film with um, this director named Reynaldo Marcus Green called Good Joe Bell with Mark Wahlberg. And it's about this kid named Jaden Bell who committed suicide a little while ago because he was gay and was being bullied online. And um, his father then went to go on this trip across the country to try to raise awareness about bullying. And I'm also working on a documentary with this director named Bing Liu, who did um, Minding the Gap. And this documentary is about an organization in Chicago called Maafa that works with men that come from gangs or gang violence and tries to help them not only deal with what they've been through emotionally and mentally and help them work on mindfulness, help them work on how to process their emotions, how to articulate themselves about what they've been through and all of that, but also gives them tools and skills to be able to assimilate into society. And so, you know, teaching them how to install an HVAC or how to do construction or things like that so that they can not only work on their emotional and spiritual side of this process, but also um, how to actually be a productive member of their community. What attracts you to a project? Yeah, I mean, all those projects, for example, all have to do with something that has some sort of like social or social justice connotation. And I think that I've always been attracted to the artists that had something to say with their work and that it wasn't just about entertainment sure. for, you know, entertainment purposes. It's entertainment that can be celebrated and acknowledged on a critical level and can be something that that just functions as a piece of film or television, but at the same time can spark conversation or cause us to like think a bit differently. I always think that art is supposed to hold a mirror to society and, and challenge us and make us think about things. And, and so I've been fortunate to be connected with these filmmakers that are doing that. And I feel like that's the kind of work that um, I'd love to continue to be a part of. What do you hope people will take away from when they see us? I, I think the biggest thing is is continuing to show these five exonerated men love. I think that, you know, seeing them talk about their experiences, it's, it's so heartbreaking that I think all the filmmakers and all the cast and crew and Ava herself tried to pour as much love as possible into the project. But it's been really beautiful to see how much love these men are now receiving from the world and from the communities. And um, I think not only continuing to do that and continuing to think about these men, but also keeping in mind that they are not the only ones that have had this experience. I think that there are so many examples of this in our world and also just in general, the prison system is just so problematic and, and is really an assembly line for men to end up in situations like this and to be broken the way that these men were broken. And so I hope that it also causes people to just think a bit more about that and to think about ways that they might be able to help fix or challenge that. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Cameron.